episode 1082, Deep Dive on Heart of Darkness, part one. Up the river. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Ederson. And I am Ben DiBono. We are back for our first deep dive on the main feed. That's right. We've done a deep dive on Moby Dick over on the Uncensored feed. We did a deep dive on most of Dune at this point in the extra feed. Yeah. Uh, what am I forgetting? Do we do anything else? I'm sure we've done a couple. I don't know. We, we like to deep dive. I think it might be mostly Dune. So we're about to do book six. Six. Yeah. After this. After yeah. we're done with Heart of after Darkness. After we're done with Heart of Darkness. And so we're going to do part one of the deep dive here just to whet your appetite. And then we're moving over to the extra feed, which is at patreon.com forward slash the Sapphire Christian for parts two and three. So, and what I, here's my challenge for for the listeners out there who are not currently subscribed to the uncensored feed. Lowest tier is $3 a month. If you subscribe now, you're going to get the rest of Heart of Darkness for $3. If you don't like it, don't want to keep on, that's fine. You can go away for $3. You can find Heart of Darkness for free. It's in the public domain. So you're not going to pay for the book. So instead, pay us to talk about the book, right? $3. It's just $3. You can afford that. Everyone can afford that. You know, if you can't, if you can't afford $3, what are you doing with your life? Sort it out and then, then subscribe to the, the Patreon feed. All right. I forgot to mention, we're also going to review the movie, but in a deep dive fashion. Of Apocalypse Now. Which is an adaptation of. Yes. Of uh, Heart of Darkness. <laughs> uh as well as the documentary Hearts of Darkness on the making oh, of Apocalypse. So that one, I don't know where I'm going to find that exactly, but I'll, you, can, you can help me track it down. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it. So uh, Heart of Darkness, um, and where I always like to start with this, is asking you, you know, yeah. you've now read the first third. It's divided yeah. into three parts. What did you know about Heart of Darkness going in, and did how did what you read line up with that? Yeah, so, okay, this, this is a great question. Without... This has nothing to do with the actual book. I knew there was a character named Kurtz. Yeah. Colonel. Is that right? Well, he's a colonel in Apocalypse Now. He's not a colonel okay. in the novel. Um, I Just because you've mentioned it so many times about this river action. Right. I figured there's going to be a river. Th- I know there's going to be a river, assuming there's going to be a boat. Uh, it, it takes place during a war, maybe in Vietnam. So you're conflating Apocalypse Now with Heart of Darkness. Okay. So I, I don't know. Maybe I know more about Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I know that Stanley Kubrick wrote this book. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking about that one. Right, right. Okay, so no, maybe I know more about Apocalypse Now. Okay, so so what I, you went you you were expecting this book to involve Vietnam? Yes. Did do you find yourself questioning that when you learned, if you learned that it was written in 1899? Oh, interesting. I didn't learn that yeah, until that, just now. That, that would have thrown that yes. little factoid for a loop. <laughs> yeah, when, and when it started, so I mean, I know we'll t- we'll do the deep dive like we always do. Maybe I should wait till you ask me the questions. But I I kind of thought Kurtz was the main character because that's the only character I knew, and he's mentioned. But is he introduced? Yeah, he's introduced in this first section. He's not on on screen, but he is. He's mentioned and we, a couple of times. They talk about his personality, his characteristics, his personality. Yes. So, and I and just to be totally transparent, I I'm doing the audiobook. I listened to it. Uh, late last week, and right now I'm having a hard time remembering who the narrator is, who the main character is. What name wise? What's the name of the main character? So it, it's interesting because, and, and this is one of the things I want to talk about, and then we'll kind of what we do in these deep dives for people who haven't listened to it before is we'll actually just 
go through the text. I have a number of quotes to pull out. and We'll, we'll just kind of talk about them as we go. But talking about it more at the macro level to begin with, you know, one of the – if we think about the structure of this novel, I think that's very, very important. Uh, what's physically happening in the novel is this journey up the river to find Kurtz, right? And that's what the next two parts are going to be about. He's he's repairing his steamboat at the end of part one, so he doesn't even have a boat to go up the river. Um, so there's this journey inwards. There's this, this, like, we're on the outer perimeter going in. And what's interesting is the whole narrator question, the structure of the novel actually lends itself to that as well. Who's the narrator? Well, there's multiple narrators because this is a nested narrative. So we have a first-person unnamed narrator who opens the book. I think that's what I'm thinking of as the main character. No, no you're not, okay. actually. Okay. The main character is Marlo. Okay. So when the book opens, we have our main character, who presumably is you could think of as Joseph Conrad, you know, the oh, author of yeah. the book, uh, is on a he's on a boat on the River Thames in London, and uh, he has he and his compatriots are telling stories to each other, and one of his compatriots is Marlowe, and Marlowe begins to tell the story of the time when he went up the river, worked for this company in Africa. Okay. You know, where in Africa? Well, that's one of the great quotes that we'll get to is when he talks about the blank places on the map. You know, he was, he's drawn to the blank places on, on the map, meaning that this, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we have you know, Google Earth and everything. But imagine an old timey map and you've, you've got, you know, all these parts filled in and then they're just a part of the map where there's nothing. You know, mm. nobody's explored there yet. And, and so th this is where this, is, is a recently filled in place. We'll read the quote when we get there, but it's one of my favorites in the book is that he's drawn to the blank places in the map. And this was a place he had been drawn to as a child, but now it's been filled in with darkness. It's like, so physically we're heading into the interior of Africa, deep up the river to find Kurtz and the river is described. Do you remember how he describes the river? Like Dark. a snake, okay. you know, and so it's like we're the snake, you could think of it coiling in on itself. And, mm -hmm. and it's just this, you know, circling deeper and deeper, both literally and thematically. But then structurally, too, we start at the outer perimeter and we're working our way in. Like so Joseph Conrad writes a novel and his novel has a narrator. And then that narrator meets Marlowe. And now Marlowe's telling his story. But then Marlowe's not really the main character even because this is really a novel about Kurtz and who is Kurtz and who is this guy and why like we were getting hints of him. And so at the, the center of this novel is Kurtz and this enigma of who he is and what he is and why and all of that. And that's what we're going after, you know? And so you can see how the themes of the novel and the structure of the novel are very intertwined. Yeah. I like that. And you think of, like a snake eating its own tail? Is that how you envision this book? Less less of the Ouroboros and more of like a snake coiled in on itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're you can almost picture the geography of this novel, of this river. It's like you're going up the river and maybe you're maybe it's winding around and, and there's 
as you keep going, things are getting worse and your the civilization is melting away and and your own sanity is melting away. And then at the center is this this guy named Kurtz. And the more we learn about him, the more his legend is going to grow. And what in the world is he that everybody speaks of him in these hushed tones? We're we're heading up there to find Kurtz. It's like this terror that 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 is present. I know we're about to deep dive on the book and not the movie, but just in, already from the short, a few things you've told me, the movie seems quite different. So, as we go forward, is the book going to uh, like be much different than what we're going to get when we eventually do a deep dive on the film? So the film um, is not; it is different in the sense that the setting is totally different. So here we're concerned with colonialized Africa. Um, the movie's concerned, of course, with Vietnam, uh, and so all the details are different, but. The big structure is exactly the same. So in the movie, it opens with a pre-Star Wars Harrison Ford uh, giving, I, I think it's Lieutenant Marlowe, a mission to head up the river and exterminate Colonel Kurtz. He's being sent as an assassin hmm. to go kill Colonel Kurtz. It happens in the, you know, it's not giving anything away. This is like the first scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so exterminate him with extreme prejudice. Uh, and so then the bulk of the movie is Marlowe heading up the river which in is, the middle of Vietnam. Which is not book Marlowe's goal. He's not going there to kill Kurt. Correct. Correct. Oh, interesting. You know, I, I, just as a quick side tangent, in the last episode we talked a lot, well, last two episodes we've talked about history and how to view history. And as you're describing, the movie and the book are different, but the general ideas are the same. Is this how uh, I, I know we're not talking about history here, but is that kind of the idea of how to view history? It's like, yeah, some of the action might be different, but you're going to get the same story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that it's I, I, I'd hesitate to call them identical, but there's tangential relationship and that you're identifying is correct. You know, and this whole theme of like going up the river and being transformed by what you find there. Part of why it's so powerful and I'm so drawn to it is it, it comes up literally and figuratively in so many other great works. You know, we've talked about Agira, uh, The mm-hmm. Wrath of God. Yeah. Like, again, they're going up the river to find, you know, this lost city of gold and they slowly go insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like Lawrence of Arabia is an up the river story uh, without a river, of course, because yeah, no, they're in no the river. desert. No, but it's the same type of thing. It's like, think of Cairo as, as, the edges of civilization and that's kind of where we've been in part one and then he finds you know the camp uh, where uh prince fossil is and then he's got to cross the desert it's like there's this going deeper and deeper and deeper and then suddenly you realize your own physical journey is paralleling your mental journey and and now what have you found out about yourself and do you even like that like are you even okay with what you found out about yourself lawrence of arabia is a is heart of darkness as well in its own way wow which i don't mean to imply that they're trying to adapt heart of darkness but thematically it's there okay wow it's actually interesting because heart of darkness outside of a uh, a couple of, uh, I think, cheap TV adaptations. It's never had its great film adaptation. You know, like but, Apocalypse but, Now is the great adaptation, but it's not the novel. Okay. Uh, the closest it ever got was Orson Welles had planned to do a straight adaptation of Heart of Darkness, and uh, the project ultimately failed. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's interesting because I can find Heart of Darkness in dozens of movies, 
most prominently, of course, Apocalypse Now, but Heart of Darkness has never been its own movie. Yeah, officially adapted. Officially adapted. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, last thing I'll state for those who have heard Moby Dick is that it it is it, fascinating to me, and maybe this is a good segue to start to get into the text, um, how much how much overlap there is thematically with the way that uh, Melville talks about the sea and Conrad is talking about sailing oceans. It made me wonder, you know, because Conrad's British and Moby Dick's reputation was a little better in England at the time than it was in the U.S. at the end of the, the 19th century. I, I don't know and I wasn't able to find out, but I'd be very wouldn't surprise me a bit if Conrad had read Moby Dick. By okay. this point. So this is just a little, I know you're about to dive into the deep dive, but here's a little, uh, I don't know, what, something to, to get listeners to realize how awesome I believe your deep dive episodes are. I don't think I would have enjoyed Moby Dick if not for us really taking our time to go through and for you to give me the analysis and us to have the conversations over, it was, what was it, 16 weeks? Yeah. It was long. Get this. My eight-year-old just in the last couple of days asked me what my favorite book is. I said, well, the Bible. <laughs> and right. I said, but besides That's the Bible, a cheap answer. besides the Bible, my two favorite books are The Divine Comedy and Moby Dick. There you it's go. It's crazy. There I can't believe that that's true about me. Maybe you'll add Heart of Darkness on there. Maybe. I'm, it sounds like initial reviews are, you're not quite there. No, I mean, I, so far I liked it, but I did, uh, I, I feel this happens to it. Usually when we do the deep dives, I try to listen to it the day that you're coming over the oh, day sure, before. Sure. I feel like it's. Not fresh in my mind, but as we get talking, more will come back to me. And then next week, I'll make sure there's some weirdness because I had to check it out for my library. Oh. So I have it for certain time periods. But we're good to go now for the rest of the, the three weeks that we're doing this. All right. So let's start here. Um, and, and what I want you to pay attention to, so th- these first two quotes I'm going to read are from before we get into Marlowe's story. But pay attention to the way, the mythic way that Conrad is describing nature in the first quote, and then how he talks about sailors uh, and seamen in the second quote. And and for those who have read Moby Dick, whether with her deep dive or not, try and make that connection as well. So first quote here, only the gloom to the west brooding over the upper reaches became more somber every minute, as if in angered by the approach of the sun. And at last, in its curved and imperceptible fall, the sun sank low, and from glowing white changed to a dull red without rays and without heat, as if about to go out suddenly, stricken to death by the touch of the gloom brooding over a crowd of men. Forthwith a change came over the waters, and the serenity became less brilliant, but more profound. So the thing to pay attention to is nature is not an indifferent actor in this world you know we talk about the gloom over the west is brooding like it, it's it's given this mythic characteristics you know we're living in a world that is alive in a mythic way again we saw this over and over again with moby dick and then i love the way he describes and this will seem very familiar to to moby dick fans the way he describes sailors here the tidal current runs to and fro in its unceasing service, crowded with memories of men and ships it had borne to the rest of home or to the battles of the sea. It had known and served all the men to whom the nation is proud, from Sir Francis Drake to Sir John Franklin, knights all, titled and untitled, the great knights errant of the sea. Like, you know, again, we saw that with Moby Dick. Like, he's at pains to, to take sailors and give them a not just a mythic quality in general, but a quality of knighthood in in general. Um, and 
that's we see the exact same thing here. So we're we're in that same type of narrative space. The world is alive. And you say space, do you mean liminal space? Oh. Well, yes, I do. And if you say what's liminal space, just hang on a second. So here we get to um meaning inside and outside as we were preparing to hear Marlowe's story. Marlowe was not typical in his propensity to spin yarns to be expected, and to him the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel but outside, enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze, in the likeness of one of these misty halos that sometimes are made visible by the spectral illumination of moonshine. And then, uh, going back, I'm going to read one more quote. I was thinking, this is Marlowe talking for the first time, I was thinking of very old times when the Romans first came here, here referring to Britain still at this point, 1900 years ago the other day, light came out of this river since. You say nights? Yes, but it is like a running blaze on a plain, like a flash of lightning in the clouds. We live in the flicker. May it last as long as the old earth keeps rolling. But darkness was here yesterday. Okay. So this is really good. I got to tie a number of concepts together here. So just hang on for a second. So the first one is he's talking about this concept of darkness, like historical darkness, the darkness of savagery, of, of a lack of civilization. And he's talking about it first in terms of the River Thames. It's like the Romans came and brought civilization, but it's not as though everything's good now. They brought civilization and it flashes out from the river. And I love this turn of phrase. We live in the flicker. Like our civilization is not the rule. Civilization is the exception. The rule is the darkness, savagery, right? And so what he's establishing here is a couple of things. First of all, we have this controlling metaphor now of darkness, you know, and light. We live in the flicker, but that's, it's a flicker. You know, by definition, it's going to go out. Hopefully it doesn't, but that's what we can expect. So we can define our experience then as being liminal. You know, we are in this in-between space. Liminal space, I have a YouTube video on this uh, out on our Sci-Fi Christian YouTube page that I think I would refer people to. If this is a brand new concept to you, kind of break it down, it's about 10 minutes or so. I, I'd recommend there. The very brief version is liminality refers to exactly that. It is the space in between things. It is the space where transformation is possible. It is the space where the rules are upset and and things are up for grabs and and old assumptions are overturned okay so that's what we're talking about when liminal space and what i want to highlight here is that that's exactly what conrad I almost said melville conrad <laughs> is establishing for us is that this book is going to take place in liminal space so how does that work well let's go back to the Power to the metaphor of the river, which isn't is literally in the novel, but think of it metaphorically for a second. The river is the pathway between civilization, the quote unquote light, and the darkness of savagery. So literally, our path from one point to another is the river in this novel. Hmm. Okay. It's almost like the river sticks in some ways. Exactly. Exactly. And why why do rivers why does myth so often talk to us in terms of 
of rivers, Styx being one of them, the river Letha, you know, which destroys your memories, which Dante drinks from uh, at the, and it's not original to Dante, of course, but he drinks from the river Letha at the, the top of Purgatory, and he forgets his whole memory of sin. It's like, why do rivers play that role? Because they have a liminal connotation for us. So, of course, the river in Heart of Darkness is more than a metaphor, but there it is definitely a metaphor for liminal space that's why I, I can call lawrence of arabia a river story even though there's hardly a drop of water in the mm. whole movie because the metaphor is there you're traveling up the river you know your assumptions are getting stripped away and we're going to see that throughout this part but then especially in the next two i have good news if somebody doesn't want to go to youtube you can go to episode 1054 not that long ago we actually put the audio of that YouTube video here in the main feed. So episode 1054, Liminal Space Explained. Perfect. Perfect. So there you go. You don't, You just have to go back on your podcast feed a little bit and you got it right there. So maybe you even want to pause this if you haven't heard that one. Just take the 10 minutes and get there because we're, we're going to use liminal space a lot. And we're going to use that concept a lot. So you've got at least... You know, you don't have to get it perfectly, but you got to you got to be on board with me here at least enough because <laughs> I don't want people to get lost. OK, so that's going to be our controlling metaphor. This novel is going to take place in liminal space. OK, so everything we should understand Marlowe's journey, you know, as he goes from civilization up the river to Kurtz is a journey of liminal space. When we find Kurtz, we should expect to find a man who has been through that same journey. And the question is, what happens on the other side? How did the journey transform him? How did the journey transform him? And does him? the journey transform everyone in the same way? Exactly. Or, you know, if it's not in the same way, we can at least expect it to transform us in as equally a powerful way. Okay. You know, Kurtz is not an exception. Kurtz is the rule. Yeah, because as liminal space changes people in different ways, whatever's happening in this story... There, there will be an impact, but it will be different for each character. Yes. So now I want to read the next quote, which is going to go back to nature as kind of this alive thing. But now let's think about it in terms of what we just talked about with liminal space. Land in a swamp, march through the woods, and in some inland post feel the savagery, the utter savagery had closed round him. All that mysterious life of the wilderness that stirs in the forest and the jungles and the hearts of wild men. There's no initiation either into such mysteries. He has to live in the midst of the incomprehensible, which is also detestable, and it has a fascination too that goes to work upon him. The fascination of the abomination, you know. Imagine the growing regrets, the longing to escape, the powerless to the surrender the hate oh it's like well marlo you're just taking a boat ride no 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 like why does nature take on this mythic level it's because what you're encountering is not trees and grass and water you're encountering the gods like you're encountering the old gods are alive in a very real sense and they're working powerfully on you because you are in liminal space at that point it's phenomenal. So continuing on then, he starts talking about uh, conquerors. 
They were conquerors, conquerors, and for that you only want brute force, nothing to boast of when you have it, since your strength is just an accident arising from the weakness of others. They grabbed what they could get for the sake of what was to be got. It was just robbery with violence, aggravated murder on a grand scale, and men going at it blind, as is very proper for those who tackle a darkness. The conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. Much. What redeems it is the idea only, an idea at the back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea, and an unselfish belief in the idea is something you can set up and bow down to and offer sacrifice to. So here, we need to back up a little bit. One of Conrad's particular concerns is colonialism and racism, okay, specifically racism in the form of British colonialism. And he's critical of it. We're going to see there's there's a moment a little bit later where he's just blisteringly sarcastic towards towards one of the British characters. And it's it's great. So we'll highlight those as we go. It's important to the novel. But part of why this novel has transcended itself, again, it's like it's almost transcended itself too much where it can't even get its own adaptation it's like somebody you always have to take it and put now we're going to do heart of darkness in vietnam or heart of darkness in the desert or heart of darkness in south america it's like it has to it transcends itself way too much uh is because that idea is right there like there's there's think about what we just read on the one hand when we talk about conquest we can't put it into simple categories all of our categories break down Oh, it's light and darkness. Oh, but wait a second here. Yeah, that's true. We've already been running with that metaphor. But that metaphor is inadequate. Why? Because what we're calling darkness is just this accident that we happen to be stronger from other people and we're taking it from them. We, we, we talk about civilization and it's, it's ripping land away from other people, giving it to ourselves or something ugly there. But we also can't just, you know, take the, uh, critical theory approach the marxist approach here and and just reduce it to that either because there is this flicker of light that comes there is this sense of establishing something of building something and like these ideas exist in tension with each other and you say well i want it resolved i want to either be okay with with the conquerors and to do that we're gonna deride the, the natives as savages and 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 less than or I want to be wholly critical of the conquerors they're just evil white men you know it's like the, the, we're, we're just gonna go critical theory on them and uh, you don't get to do either in liminal space guess what happens in liminal space you get the tension and then you just let that tension become this pressure cooker for you and that's what changes you so if you go into this novel saying, I want this novel to be simple, I want it to either be critical of colonialism, full stop, or uh, pro-colonialism, pro-civilization, full stop, you don't get either. Get in the pressure cooker, buckle up, buttercup, because <laughs> we're, we're cooking with liminal space now, okay? So, now we start to get into some of uh, Marlowe's journey here yet to understand the effect it had on me you ought to know how i got out there this is marlowe speaking about um his own journey up the river what i saw how i went up the river to the place where i first met the poor chap a poor chap and being a reference to kurtz though we don't know that yet 
It was the farthest point of navigation and the culminating point of my experience. It seemed somehow to throw a kind of light on everything about me and into my thoughts. It was somber enough, too, and pitiful. Not extraordinary in any way. Not very clear, either. No, not very clear. And yet it seemed to throw a kind of light. I'm going to skip to the next uh, quote, so a few paragraphs down. True, by this time it was not a blank space anymore. This is referring to this spot on the map. It had got filled since my boyhood with rivers and lakes and names. It had ceased to be a blank space of delightful mystery, a white patch for a boy to dream gloriously over. It had become a, a place of darkness. But there was in it one river especially, a mighty big river that you could see on the map, resembling an immense snake uncoiled, with its head in the sea and its body at rest curving over a vast country, and its tail lost in the depths of land. And I looked at the map of it in a shop window. It fascinated me as a snake would a bird, a silly little bird. Oh, so much good there. So first of all, we get, you know, this great line, and I, I think I didn't highlight my favorite line of, of how he loves the the blank spaces on a map um but it was like we have this blank space and it's been filled in with darkness and then right in the middle is this snake and it's like a snake eating a bird and who's the bird in the metaphor yeah. marlo yeah yeah it's like yes it's so good it's so good yeah. like the way he develops that yeah uh so that's that's the the journey for him now we're not even going to talk about Kurtz yet, but we're going to talk about uh, this other character, Fresleven, this German captain or Dutch captain who is responsible for creating a vacancy uh, for Marlow. And Fresleven lost his mind. Fresleven, that was the fellow's name, a Dane, thought himself wrong somehow in the bargain. He's uh, Fresleven gets a little pissy about uh, some hens with the natives, and that sets off this. So he went ashore and started to hammer the chief of the village with a stick. Oh, it didn't surprise me in the least to hear this, and at the same time to be told that Fresleven was the gentlest, quietest creature that ever walked on two legs. Put a pin in that, we'll come back to it in just a second. No doubt he was, but he had been a couple of years already out there engaged in the noble cause, cause you know, and he probably felt the need at last to, of asserting his self-respect in some way. And so then he goes on, I don't have the whole story, but Fresleven gets stabbed with a spear, and Fresleven is now dead, and that's why Marlowe has an opening to step into. Wow. But the key thing to get here is, what does Fresleven do? He gets mad about some hens, so he heads on board to the natives and starts beating the chief to death with a stick. But Fresleven was the gentlest, you know, kindest guy in the world. So here's how we're all going to help ourselves to envision this. Uh, you don't have a violent bone in your body. so what? You're talking to me. Yes, I'm talking to you. So what Marlowe's describing here is a situation where you go work on the river for a couple of years, as you are, cheerful, kind Matt Anderson, believes in the power of friendship, and two years later, you're beating a native to death with a stick. That's what he's talking about. That's the transformation. That's what's happening when you go up the river. Okay. Like, so would we, you know, we haven't even gotten to Kurtz yet. But this is the type of transformation you're talking about. Fresleven, he just lives his normal life. That side of him never comes out. He goes up the river, and he becomes a monster. And is the implication this could happen to anybody? Exactly. The implication is, maybe you don't have that part of you, but you send Matt Anderson up the river, and two years later, forget the power of friendship. We're beating the natives to death with a stick. 
that's what we're talking about. That's what can happen when you head up the river. Uh, it, it's like, okay, so, you know, at this point in the novel, we haven't even gotten to the river. We haven't even gotten to the boat. When we get to the boat, the boat's broken. You know, we're a million miles away from the titular heart of darkness, and we're already having fresh leave and go postal on everybody. It's not good. It's not good. So it's like we should realize at this point we're playing with high stakes. Is it supposed to be an ominous start? Yeah. You know, I, I my takeaway from section one is that it was all prologue. Like the story hadn't really started yet. Is that what I'm supposed to feel about that first section? Yes and no. I mean, yes in the sense that, you know, we're really after Kurtz. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's going to be a while before we get to Kurtz, you know, and just spoilers for uh, Apocalypse Now, if you're expecting Marlon Brando to be in the whole movie, he's not. You know, he's at the end. Kurtz is at the end. You know, the real the real story is our following in Kurtz's footsteps as we go. So is this prologue? Yes. We haven't begun our journey yet. Is it prologue? No, because we're already seeing the casualties along the road. We're seeing, okay, we're walking in Kurtz's footsteps. We don't even know who Kurtz is at this point. Mm-hmm. We're walking in his footsteps and we look over and there's a fresh leave and it went insane and was beating people to death. Mm-hmm. Like that's like we're in the midst of it, but we're not in the midst of it. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I love this scene then where he gets checked out by the doctor. Uh, the doctor needs to work out his bedside manner here a bit. I always ask leave in the interest of science to measure the crania of those going out there, he said. And when they come back too, I asked. Oh, I never see them, he remarked. Pause there. That could be read two ways. He never sees them because they go home a different way. Or he never sees them because they don't come back. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrific. Yeah. It's like, why doesn't, wait a second, doctor, why don't you see them? Yeah. You don't do the exit? That's that's another doctor? Oh, no, I'm the only doctor. Wait a second. You know, so you don't see them. Does anyone come back? Is this the point of no return? Yeah. You know, also, when we talk about liminal, liminal space, we talk about threshold moments. So, you know, this is very humor, humorously, or at least I find it humorous, a, a, a threshold moment, like the doctor's office. Okay, you're cleared. Head up river. Um, like he has a choice here. Yeah. Maybe don't go up the river. Maybe don't go up the river. Yeah. Uh, I asked, or I never see them, he remarked. And moreover, the changes take place inside you, you know. He smiled as if it's some quiet joke. So you were going out there. Famous. Interesting, too. He gave me a searching glance and made another note. Ever any madness in your family? He asked in a matter oh, no. of fact tone. <laughs> I just, I love this character because you can tell that uh, the doctor knows more than he's he's letting on, but he's also not hiding it very well. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, wait a second, why are you asking if there's any madness in my family? Oh, no reason, just curious. Why are you measuring my skull? Why, why are you saying you never see them when they come back? Uh, it's terrific. Okay, so we, we've crossed the threshold. You know, this is like, uh, if you've read... Uh, you know, divine comedy with us over the years it's like we're, we're now uh, abandon all hope ye who enter here that's the sign on the doctor's office yeah, yeah. <laughs> that way we're we've stepped out of the doctor's office uh and what happens there now and then a boat from the shore gave one a momentary contact with reality 
It was paddled by blackfellows. You could see them from afar, the white of their eyeballs glistening. They shouted, sang, their bodies streamed with perspiration. They had faces like grotesque masks, these chaps, but they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and true as the surf along the coast. They wanted no excuse for being there. They were a great comfort to look at. For a time, I would feel I belonged still to a world of straightforward facts, but the feeling would not last long. Something would turn up to scare it away. So I love that. And it also fits like with what we're talking about with facts, even with the the history episode earlier tonight. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we're now in a world where facts are going to pop up here and there. But by and large, we're in unreality. You know, as long as we have a myriad of non-adaptation adaptations of Heart of Darkness, uh, may I, I propose that we need a David Lynch type person to do mm. Heart of Darkness. Like, just bring all the surrealism to it here, you know? Because this is what David Lynch captures in so many of his movies. It's like this sense of, you, and I, I may be stretching the metaphor too far, but going up the river uh, as well, except into your own madness, into this place of unreality. It actually sounds like something, a project he'd be interested in. Have you ever heard of? I, I have not. Okay. You know, he's like 75 now, so it's probably unlikely to happen. But, I, you know, in in my fantasy world, like, you can see it. You can see a surrealist version of okay. Heart of Darkness. And, and indeed, arguably, that's a faithful adaptation because he's telling us right there, oh, I see a boat with people. Okay, for, so for a second, I'm back in reality. And they're gone. And now we're back into all the world. You know, there's no facts anymore. You know, we're, we're past facts at that point. All right. Uh, now we hear, okay, so what type of person, uh, heads up country. It is funny what some people will do for a few francs a month. I wondered what would, what becomes of that kind when it goes up country. I said to him, I expected to see that soon. So he exclaimed, he shuffled athwart, keeping one eye ahead vigilantly. Don't be too sure. He continued. The other day I took a man who hanged himself on the road. He was a Swede too. Hanged himself. Why in God's name? I cried. He kept on looking out watchfully. Who knows? The sun too much for him. Or the country, perhaps. Oh, it's like, okay, Fresleven was not an exception. Yeah. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're now, you know, what type of people are heading up here? This guy made it through the doctor's office, and he, <laughs> he's hanging himself. Uh, now, as we get further up, we start to get to some of the outposts. Now, listen to how he describes the native population. And again, this is like this hypercritical of colonialism aspect of it. Think of how dehumanized they are. So see that level here in the description I'm about to read. But then also think in terms of the larger theme of surrealism and all of that. Black shapes crouched lay, stat between the trees, leaning against the trunks, clinging to the earth, half coming out, half effaced within the dim light, in all the attitudes of pain, abandonment, and despair. Another mine on the cliff went off, followed by a slight shudder of the soil under my feet. The work was going on, the work, and this was the place where some of the helpers had withdrawn to die. They were dying slowly, it was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now, nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation lying confusedly in the greenish gloom. It's a powerful description, and it's like, again, let's note the levels. So these are people who are suffering under the work of colonialism. So razor-sharp critique. 
but it's also deeper than that. And that's not to minimize that critique by, by any stretch of the imagination, but we're in this surreal thing. So what was his, his touchstone of reality a few minutes ago? It was seeing these uh, black bodies, these native people. They were real people. Well, now they're not. Like, now they're just blobs waiting to die. You know, it's like now even that touchstone of reality has eroded. And we haven't even gotten to the boat yet. It's already happening. Like, this is you know, time to turn around. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now we, we, we keep going. So this is where I, I talked about this blistering sarcasm. So we, we find out that the man in charge of this operation, or he's the accountant who is of this part of the, the company, is this ultra well-dressed man. And so think about everything we've just been talking about. And now you have this foppish, perfectly dressed guy in the midst of it. And I just love the way Marlowe describes him. I respected the fellow. And we say, wait a second. No, this is how you know it's sarcasm. Because there's no way this imagery is respectable. Yes, I respected his collars, his vast cuffs, his brushed hair. His appearance was certainly that of a hairdresser's dummy. But in the great demoralization of the land, he kept up his appearance. That's backbone. His starched collars and got-up shirt fronts were achievements of character. He had been out nearly three years, and later I could not help asking him how he managed to sport such linen. He had just the faintest blush and said modestly, I've been teaching one of the native women about the station it was difficult she had a distaste for the work thus the man had truly accomplished something it's like so we got fresh leaving over here uh beating people we got this swede who's hanging himself we have native workers who are huddling in the corner to die and then we've got this accountant who's concerned about his brushed hair it's like something is deeply wrong here it's like a madhouse yeah exactly you know it's so on the one hand again blistering critique of colonialism look at all this suffering maybe there's things more important than your cuffs you know Mm -hmm. blistering critique but it's also the inversion of reality okay in the light in that flicker of light uh you have somebody walk up who's beating someone to death with the stick. That will get your attention. That's the thing that stands out. You know, it reminds me of Alice in Wonderland when she first gets there and there, she just meets these random characters with these random conversations. Yeah. And everything just is off. Right. Everything's it's off. Dreamlike. Yeah. It, and it, that's that's well put. I hadn't made that connection, but it's it's the surrealism, mm-hmm. right? You know, so and and what's the part that truly feels weird once you've been in there? It's the guy who looks normal. Mm-hmm. You know, normal has now been completely redefined. Yeah, this guy's not normal. He's he's only getting there by exploiting people. There's nothing normal about him. Fris Levin's the normal one, mm. and he's nuts. <laughs> he's psychotic. He's killing people. Well, but this is the accountant, and here we get our first mention of Kurtz. One day he remarked, he being the accountant, without lifting his head. In the interior, you will no doubt meet Mr. Kurtz. On my asking who Mr. Kurtz was, he said he was a first-class agent, and seeing my disappointment at this information, he added slowly, laying down his pen, he is a very remarkable person. Further questions elicited from him that Mr. Kurtz was at present in charge of a trading post, a very important one in the true ivory country, at the very bottom of there, sent in as much ivory as all the others put together. Uh, we get our first hints of this man wildly successful but you can also tell he's holding back information Mm -hmm. like he's not just a successful agent there's something else going on here uh 
continuing on. He was a common trader from his youth up employed in these parts, nothing more. He was obeyed, yet he inspired neither love nor fear, nor even respect. He's describing the manager of this outpost here. He inspired uneasiness. That was it, uneasiness. Not a definite mistrust, just uneasiness, nothing more. You have no idea how effective such a a faculty can be. I kind of love this because this like the reason I pulled this out is it's a minor thing, but he's describing this manager who's been fairly successful at his outpost where, you know, the fresh leavens of the world are killing people. And how does, how does this guy achieve success? He, he makes everyone on, around him uncomfortable, keeps yeah. them on their toes. Yeah. It's, it's terrific. All right. So now we get a little bit more about Kurtz. There were rumors that a very important station was in jeopardy, and its chief, Mr. Kurtz, was ill. Hoped it was not true. Mr. Kurtz was, I felt, weary and irritable. Hang, Kurtz, I thought. I interrupted him by saying I had heard of Mr. Kurtz on the coast. Ah, so they talk of him down there, he murmured to himself. Then he began again, assuring me Mr. Kurtz was the best agent he had, an exceptional man of the greatest importance to the company. Therefore, I could understand his anxiety." He was, he said, very, very uneasy. Certainly he fidgeted on his chair a good deal, exclaimed, Ah, Mr. Kurtz. I love this because it's kind of like the doctor all over again. It's like, what is it that you know that you're not telling me? It's like in Lost when nobody wants to answer a question, give yeah. a straight answer. Like, wait a second here. Yeah. You keep talking about Kurtz, and all you keep saying is he's really good at his job. There's got to be something else going on. So, you know, you, you should be having your interest peaked at this point. So a few pages later, uh, tell me, pray, I said, I, who is this Mr. Kurtz? The chief of the interstation, he answered in a short tone, looking away. Much obliged, I said, laughing. And you are the brickmaker of the central station. Everyone knows that. He was silent for a while. He is a prodigy, he said at last. He is an emissary of pity and science and progress and devil knows what else. We want... He began to declaim suddenly, for the guidance of the cause entrusted to us by Europe, so to speak, higher intelligent intelligence, wide sympathies, a singleness of purpose. So now it's like, okay, we're getting a hint of the legend here. Uh, first it started with, he's just really good at bringing in ivory. All right. But now why is everybody talking about him in hushed tones? He is an emissary of pity and science and progress. Well, what does that actually mean? Yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> you know, nobody will tell you. But like, wait a second. I thought he was just good at bringing in ivory. What? What is? Who is this guy? It's it's terrific. Okay. Uh, now we 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 get a little bit more of uh, this primeval nature. So this is as he gets to his his ship and finds that it's. Um, in mud. So here the situation is his steamboat is, uh, he finally gets there and he finds it is just a disaster. It is destroyed. I had my shoulders against the wreck of my steamer hauled up on the slope like a carcass of some big river animal. The smell of mud, of primeval mud by Jove was in my nostrils. The high stillness of primeval forest was before my eyes. They were, there were shiny patches on the black creek the moon had spread over everything a thin layer of silver over the rank grass over the mud upon the wall of matted vegetation standing higher than the wall of a temple over the great river i could see through a somber gap glittering glittering as it flowed broadly by without a murmur all this was great expectant mute while the man jabbered about himself so it's not a steamboat it's a 
primeval animal. It's covered in this primeval mud with the primeval forest. We have traveled through time to, to before history. Like we are in the dawn of the world here at this moment. And if all of the early quotes about primeval nature are like, yeah, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, we've, we haven't even gotten to the river really, but we've come far enough where it should be like, okay, I get it. Yeah. Like there are mythic forces at work here. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is bigger than us. Uh, you know, you mentioned Loss a few minutes ago. Yeah. I'm wondering how, if Loss was at all inspired by this book. I mean, the, the, it was a lot inspired by a lot of different things, but I'd say that part of, we're going to talk about Loss a long time here, listeners, but part of the plot of Lost does deal with transformation. And I wouldn't, at the time of watching Lost, I wasn't using the phrase liminal space. Yeah. But that is something that's happening there. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'm remembering for back, sure. Sawyer would, you know, give nick- the character Sawyer would give nicknames to different other characters. And he once called the character Locke, Colonel Kurtz. There you go. What do you think? Heart, heart of darkness. All right, there it is. All right. So, it's interesting here. Well, let me just read this and there, there's a number of things I want to point out. I had a notion it would somehow somehow would be of help to me that Kurtz, whom at the time I did not see, you understand. He was just a word for me. I did not see the man in the name any more than you do. Do you see him? Now, let's pause here for a second. He was, like, in the middle of a thought. I had a notion it would somehow be of help to me that Kurtz, whom at the time I did not see, you understand, that he launches into this diatribe. He's speaking to his listeners, who's our first narrator. Remember, there's a narrator at the top of this whole thing. And then ultimately to, to you as the reader, do you see him? Do you see the story? Do you see anything? It seems to me I am trying to tell you a dream, making a vain attempt, because no relation of a dream can convey the dream sensation, the commingling of absurdity, surprise, the bewilderment and tremor of struggling revolt, that notion of being captured by the incredible, which is the very essence of dreams. He was silent for a while. Know what happened there? A little bit more to read. But we broke the narrative. We actually, we, we, we went up a level. Okay, Marlowe's narrative stops. So we've been in the flow. We have this framing device. Mm-hmm. And we just broke it for a Wh- second. Why? Why did it break? Well, let me finish okay. the quote, and then I'll, I'll give you some thoughts. My thoughts, not definitive reason. No, it is impossible. It is impossible to convey the life sensation of any given epoch of one's existence. That which makes it truth, its meaning, is su- its subtle and penetrating essence. It is impossible. We live as we dream, alone. Hmm. It's so good. Like The reason I highlight that is because what's he trying to do? He's trying to describe who Kurtz is. You know, and then he's admonishing you because you don't see him. Do you see him? You don't. He's just a word for me. I did not see the man any more than you do. So he goes on this diatribe and it's like, it's so much the narrative can't hold it. The narrative breaks. Hmm. There's a moment in Ingmar Bergman's movie Persona where the movie literally breaks. Like a film strip comes up okay. as though the film was literally breaking in the projector. Okay. And then it rewinds and like it goes back a scene and starts again, you know, and it's the same type of thing that's going on in that movie. It's like the movie just breaks itself. It becomes too much. The narrative can't hold it. Hmm. That's more postmodern in its effect. Here is a more modernist version of it. We have a framing device, but we're deep in Marlowe's story. There's no reason to go back to our original narrator again, except Marlowe's story breaks, can't hold it. It, it, that's crazy it's 
wild. It's not breaking the fourth wall. It's something different. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not breaking the fourth wall. That would be the postmodern way yeah. of doing this. This is like just within the narrative. And and when does it happen? It happens when we're trying to describe Kurtz. So it's like what we were just talking about. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, now Marlowe's trying to tell us. It can't. He fails. It almost seems like, and I don't think, well, I haven't read the books. So I don't know where it's going, but you've talked so much about the transcendent. And when you try yep. to describe the transcendent, you just cannot. You can't. I don't know if. I want to compare Kurtz to the transcendent, but maybe in this story that's true. What do you think? Oh, you are, you are on the money with now how literal that is. We're not. I'll just spoil this at least. We're not going to get to the end, and Kurtz isn't like a god or yeah. an alien or anything like that. Um, but in Apocalypse Now, uh, Dennis Hopper has a small role as this journalist who's living with Kurtz. And when we, we get there, he's like, he's more than a man. He's a God. He, you know, he's transcendent. It's like the same idea mm-hmm. that you're describing there. Uh, so yes, yes. What does Kurtz mean? Is he literally a transcendent being in the narrative? No, he's a man. Okay. So we're, we're not going completely off left field, but what does he mean? Well, he is his meaning transcends what Marlowe can describe. And then I just love that. We live as we dream alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I I don't know if I agree with that sentiment, but it's a good quote. It is. Yeah. And it's like but but if you know if the narrative was to interact back with you, it would be like, well you don't agree with it because you haven't been up the river. You haven't been through this. If you had, then you would understand. Mm-hmm. Last quote I have for this section, um, you know, and this is almost like a side note, you know, that's the note to end on, right? But this is good too. Uh, and I thought, thought of a, the episode we did recently on, on the dignity of work, the joy of work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I don't like work. I'd rather laze about and think of all the fine things that can be done. I don't like work. No man does, but I like what is in the work. The chance to find yourself, your own reality, for yourself, not for others. When no other man can ever know, they can only see the mere show and never can tell what it really means. That's great on that level. It's also a great moment for Marlowe's journey, for the narrative. Uh, I mean, this thing is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. This thing is just phenomenal. So I know I had originally said we'll do part one here and then part two and three in the next episode. I'm, there's no way we're going to make it through parts two and three in a single episode. Oh, okay. So we'll do part two next week. Okay. Part two next week on the extra feed. So $3. You can afford $3. If you can't, go stand by a freeway exit ramp and get yourself $3. It'll take like five minutes. Is that how it goes? And give it to us. $3. You got the book for free. You can do it. $3. Well, listeners, if that doesn't sell you on this, I don't know what will. Go to patreon.com don't forward slash... Don't be a fresh leaven. The Sci-Fi Christian. I'm no, Matt Anderson. No, Matt, don't, don't make me beat, beat you with a stick. $3. Come on. You can quit after a month. You can quit. You can be a quitter. You can do this. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians. Uh, ben DiVoto. Go up the river. The Patreon River. $3. Signing off. You think that yeah, is our Patreon feed sort of a, a liminal space of yeah, transformation? Yeah, it's a liminal space of transformation. You can do this. Come on. You want to read the rest of Heart of Darkness? You read it on your own, you're going to be confused. You're going to get lost. It's a hard book. You need us. All right, goodbye.